I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 21st, 2016. Last week in this space, I said, who cares about Dak Prescott? And now I'm going to say that we are going to talk about Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Because how long can one man and one nation go without talking about Dak Prescott? We've suffered long enough. We'll also be joined by Neil Payne of 538 to talk about the state of the running quarterback and what today's runners slash passers owe to Randall Cunningham. And Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski will be here to talk about Connor McDavid, Patrick Laine, and Austin Matthews, the National Hockey League's three new teenage stars. Joining me is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And we've got to congratulate Stefan. Big news. He did not miss an extra point. On Sunday. One of the few kickers who did not. That's great news. Can we talk about this in uh, Whimsy Watch? We can talk about it in Whimsy Watch. (laughs) Joining us as always from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. And he didn't miss an extra point either. No, but I started going for two because of the win. (laughs) Not much of your identity is really bound up in it, so you don't deserve (laughs) Congratulations. It's good. Um, 12 missed PATs. Are we in Whimsy right now? Have Um, we entered the Whimsy stream? We're beyond (laughs) the Whimsy stream. We are in uh, meta whimsy. I think All we're right. at Whimscom too. <laughs> I never know. No one, no one knows if Defcons go up or down. But we could define how they go the Whimscom. Down. All right. No, they go down. So Whimscom if, goes up though. Yeah, but more whimsical or less whimsical? If if it's at one, that's the least whimsical, which is the most dangerous. <laughs> We're we're beyond meta. All I know, all I know, I don't know if it goes up or or down. I know that it is punctuated by the audio of a slide whistle, whichever way it moves. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Stefan, yeah, those twelve missed PATs. How do they make you feel emotionally? Emotionally wounded. I'm feeling a little sad. (laughs) I had a very lost a lot of sleep last night. Um, yeah, you look 12, like you've lost a lot of weight. Actually, (laughs) your cheeks look look gaunt, hollow. 
<laughs> and yeah, it was a really disaster because it, it dropped the PAT make rate all the way down to 93.6% for the season, which has just plummeted from 94.2% last year, the first year of the 33-yard extra point. So, I mean, it was basically a statistical anomaly, all these guys missing at once. Or was it? Or maybe not. They're just going to start missing them every week. Well, well now it's, games. The it's in their head. Do, have we looked at the wind stats of the games? Yeah. It was the windiest day in the Northeast that I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Wind is getting colder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Misses go up when it's colder. But still, 12 in one weekend is pretty messed up. And we still got Monday Night Football. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that happened to you. Oh, that's sad. So somebody- and there was that, that, that walk-off extra point block last week. Yeah. So really, we're in an era of you know the the, the prominence of the of the extra point. Right, Agreed. publicity is good. I mean, P- it's great right. publicity for the extra point. The other one that I wanted to mention was Dan Snyder dancing to jump around as his team was winning. And isn't there something just incredibly appropriate and non whimsical about the owner of the Washington football team being on the upswing and kind of his management style and approach to life being validated in this year of all years? Mm-hmm. Or is the fact that FedEx Field is a house of pain? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> he came to get I, down. He came to get down. You know, he actually, Snyder personally does not have more rhymes than the Bible has Psalms, which isn't actually that large a number. So therefore, not that great a brag. In fact, on the gist, once I counted the number of rhymes in an average House of Pain album compared it to <laughs> the Bible. But anyway, yeah, Dan, Dan Snyder, he's, may, may his joy ever last. I got, I got that one. I think, Ste- I don't, I think that one might've gone over Stefan's head. He knows in our, his white uh, rappers. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the Cactus album. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, football on Thanksgiving and the family traditions therein. There's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday in Texas, the Dallas Cowboys and their rookie quarterback Dak Prescott beat the Baltimore Ravens 27-17 to go to 9-1 and on the year. It was the ninth straight win for the Cowboys. That's the longest in-season winning streak in the history of the franchise. Prescott threw for 301 yards and three touchdowns with no interceptions. There's also a video on DallasCowboys.com with the title, Dak Prescott Throws Away His Own Trash, which shows him toss a Gatorade cup at a garbage can, miss the target, then pick it up and put it in the can. Now, that could cut both ways. You could ding him for the inaccuracy, Mm -hmm. but you could credit him for the stick-to-itiveness that's required to get the cup to go in the garbage. I think they're feeling pretty good about themselves in Dallas. And he's an environmentalist, clearly. Right, right. As is, is Rain Dakota Prescott. Yes, of course he is. But was it a recycling can or was it a regular trash bin? It's going to be a lot of controversy about that this week uh, in Jerry Worlds, but Skip less Bayless controversy. Has a very strong take on this issue. <laughs> less confer- less controversy than uh, than with the uh, quarterback situation because of Tony Romo handling it so gracefully. Uh, we'll get to that in one second. Prescott was taken with the number one hundred thirty five pick in this year's draft. He was not actually the rookie the Cowboys wanted. They tried to trade up for Memphis's Paxton Lynch. 
and Michigan State's Connor Cook. They also tried to trade for Nick Foles and Josh McCown in the offseason, but they couldn't pull off either move. So when Tony Romo hurt his back in the preseason, they were forced to install Prescott as the starter, and that has worked out quite well. A month ago, Prescott was insisting this is Tony's team. Last week, the 36-year-old Romo, who is now supposedly healthy enough to play, held a press conference in which he acknowledged that, no, actually, this is Dak's team. Let's listen to a bit of that press conference. You see, football is a meritocracy. You aren't handed anything. You earn everything, every single day, over and over again. You have to prove it. That's the way that the NFL, that's the way that football works. A great example of this is Dak Prescott and what he's done. He's earned the right to be our quarterback. As hard as that is for me to say, he's earned that right. So a little bit more melodramatic than your typical midweek NFL press availability. He also talked about um, being hurt and he feels like an outsider. Coaches are sympathetic, but they still have to coach. You're not there. It's a dark place. Probably the darkest it's ever been. Stefan, you're smirking. I am. What are your What are your thoughts on on Romo and his uh, and his speech? second person uh, soliloquy? I don't know. I mean, who do you think he is? Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City, second person. I thought it was a bit much. I mean, I understand that Tony Romo's in a dark place, and I understand that the end of an athlete's career is a difficult thing to accept, and I understand that it's got to be a little bit humiliating, embarrassing in some way for Tony Romo. To see him get Wally pipped the way he's gotten Wally and are, pipped. Aren't you usually in favor of people being honest? I am in favor of people being honest. And I give him tons of credit for the honesty. It did feel a little stage managed. And maybe that's because that's the way he had to do it. It was the only way he could do it. He didn't take any questions from the media. He didn't just come out and say, hey. Why couldn't know. he do it what like players back in my day did with a Players Tribune essay? Exactly. <laughs> What was he thinking? Clearly, that was the PR mistake that he made. Um, And look, yes, he was magnanimous. He was honest. And it was also very strategic because the statement was really nothing more than a preemptive strike against the media, spending the rest of the season speculating about controversy. But part of me felt a little bit like he was making it more about him than it needed to be. Uh, Charles Woodson was on one of the talk shows saying he did this for himself. Well, the last time I saw someone get so much praise for admitting essentially defeat, Fight Song was on the soundtrack, and there was a cannons full of something to approximate glass ceiling shards breaking. Anyway, I actually did uh, time and did the stats on the, uh, not the Dak Prescott, on the Tony Romo concession speech and the Hillary Clinton concession (laughs) speech. Uh, Romo, about 750 words. Clinton, little over 1,100 words. But Trump was 1,700 words. So Romo and Clinton were closer than either Clinton or Romo and Trump, for that matter. I don't, it's Cowboys world. You have to add 50 to 60% uh, everything, gloss, uh, hairspray, Michigas, not a word associated with m- most precincts, precincts in Dallas. But they demand this, you know? It's a kabuki over there. So you have to not only step aside graciously, but do it in a way that leads all local and actual national newscasts. So knowing the crowd and knowing the requirements, I think what Romo did was the right thing in the right way and helped his team as much as he could. As much and as much as he did himself, I feel bad for the guy because 
I haven't like charted it out. I, I don't. I don't have my X and, and Y axis. My like which athlete gets the most undeserved shit matrix here. Oh, but Tony Romo has just yeah. been so unfairly maligned by the dumbest you know circles of sports media. Mm-hmm. And as he said in his statement, like this is their best team since he's been there, and to have put in so many years with this franchise and taken so many hits and played so well. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And to have it be taken away and to watch a rookie who was taken, you know, with the hundred something pick 35th. lead this team to the, like the longest winning streak in NFL history, that sucks. And it particularly sucks because of the fact that he got this reputation of being a choker and like throwing interception in the fourth quarter when he's in fact like had something like the most fourth quarter comebacks in the NFL during this period. He's like somebody who has been so mistreated by narrative and like by the abuse of narrative. And then now to like criticize him for making it too much about himself, I would be I, I would be willing to forgive the guy if he's like got up there and said, fuck you, Dak Prescott. Like, this is my team. <laughs> yeah. Get the hell off. Get the hell. Uh, get your hands out from b- under my center's butt. Like, this is me. I've given vertebra for this team. <laughs> I waited for this moment. It's all me. Get the hell out of here. That's what I want to hear from Tony. That's not what I want to hear from Tony no. Romo. But I am totally willing to forgive anything that he would say or do in this circumstance. He's the third highest passer rating behind Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson in the history of the <laughs> National Football League. Is Tied that passer rating? That's not even yards QBR? per pass. Wow, wow. Yeah, passer rating. And by the way, if you want to get impressed about a guy who was not well regarded in the draft succeeding as uh, quarterback of the Cowboys, yeah. it's that guy. When you were reading all those names, by the way, and maybe this gets to another area of the conversation, I did say to myself, are we so sure they wouldn't have done just as well as Dak Prescott? Like Dak Prescott plays in the best offense. When Ezekiel Elliott was drafted there, mm-hmm. everyone said, oh my God, behind this line this is going to be i mean ezekiel was a, certainly a very good uh college rusher but I, I don't think that he was the most sought after running back coming out of college in 10 years but people rightly said the combination of those two things will be the greatest rushing attack and in des bryant you have a great great wide receiver and so this is why people were saying that but for Tony Romo's health, they, let's put the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. So Romo goes down, and the defense even exceeds expectations. What I'm saying is a f- couple things. One, it's a system that you can succeed in. Two, the most important thing for a quarterback success is having time, and he has more time. I think he has more time than anyone else behind that offensive line, good run bo- blocking and pass blocking offensive line. Three, remember Carson Wentz, how great he was? Oh, maybe we were all wrong. Well, in the last five games, I think Wentz has had the worst QB rating in the NFL. So Dak's been great. Everyone goes and, and, you know, allows him to be great because they play the run. We'll see how great Dak can be. And if it's so clear, he's better than what Tony Romo has done over a long, long career. Which leads to the question of, would it have been unreasonable for the Cowboys to reinsert Tony Romo as the starting quarterback right now? Um, I don't think it it would have been terribly unreasonable. Um, Could Dak Prescott, you know, have been given the opportunity to stand up there and say, I know I've won nine games in a row or eight games in a row, but you know what? This was Tony Romo's team. Hell no, bro. Hell no. no. no, no, no. 
And the question that should be asked here is, well, Tony Romo should retire from football. Tony Romo. That's more of a statement than a question. A, <laughs> right? a statement I agree huh? with. But... <laughs> Punctuated with a, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was the question. I had a little uptick there at the end. <laughs> right, right. Um, surgery to remove a cyst. Herniated disc surgery in 2013. Hey, if we had to retire every time we got Two a cyst back removed. back fractures and I would have been I would have been done years ago. Broken collarbone in 2015. Oh, Compression Boy. fracture and surgery on his L1 vertebra in 2016. This is the question that Tony Romo avoided by not taking questions from the media. Right. But you shouldn't be playing anymore. And it, of course, sets him up to not take questions for the rest of the year. And then, again, gracefully announce that he's going to retire and become the offensive coordinator of the Cowboys. And that's obviously the issue here is that Tony Romo has been one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL when healthy and has not been healthy the last couple of years. I think Brian Curtis made this point on a Ringer podcast with Bill Simmons the other day. It's like you didn't hear an overwhelming call from the Cowboys locker room that we must have Tony Romo back. And who knows if it's a personal thing about people preferring to play with Prescott or uh, with Romo. But there's not only the issue here of like Tony Romo not just being a football player, but being a human with emotions. Like this team is doing extremely well with this particular combination Mm -hmm. of players and with this quarterback. And I would have to imagine that it would be demoralizing or if not demoralizing, it's just like doesn't really make sense to like mess with what they've got going on right now. It seems like everything is going so well that and and Romo making this um, this speech, them continuing to, you know, have Prescott. It just seems like the best possible thing that could happen to this team, given the way things are moving, the direction that things are pointing in. But I watched all I watched the highlights. I didn't watch the whole game. I watched like Dak Prescott highlight reel of all of his plays from the game. He's like throwing five yard passes to Des Bryant, who's just like marauding down the field. He's like throwing screens to Ezekiel Elliott. He's throwing like dump off passes to Cole Beasley. This is not like the greatest example of like quarterback prowess that I've ever seen. And I think it gets exactly to Mike's point. This is an unbelievable offensive line. They've got a great running back running behind a great offensive line. And you have a quarterback who is doing, you know, he's the proverbial game manager. He's been great at dealing with this incredible hand that he's been dealt with these great skills position players and this great offensive line. He's just like, he has an unbelievably easy job that he is not uh, botched and he's not injured. So these are all good things for a quarterback to be. And so I would say why Tony Romo shouldn't play is because he gets hurt a lot. And so while it's rolling well, let it roll well. Um, why put Tony Romo in there? And then he gets hurt during the regular season. And then you've perhaps shaken Dak's confidence. You go back to a guy that you clearly said was second best. Um, I would think that if he didn't have the history that he does, there'd be more, not just in performance, but ability to stay on the field. Is that now almost a microaggression to use that phrase? Anyway, if Tony Romo wasn't Tony Romo, where you could reasonably think that in the next six games of the season, he's going to get hurt, thus putting your team in a much worse position than if you just stick with what's working, then you might try Tony Romo. But don't do it now. If they were... Five and four instead of eight and one when this decision was made, they would have made a different decision. The Denver Broncos, by the way, brought Peyton Manning back last year after injury when he couldn't throw the ball 15 yards. So different player, you know, and maybe that's a credit to Romo. Maybe Cowboys management approached him and said, do you want 
to try to play again. What do you think, you you know, what would be your preference here? What do you think makes sense for the team? And that would be a courtesy that wouldn't be unreasonable in a normal organization that wasn't a pro football team to afford an employee with the kind of service and experience and proven ability that Tony Romo has. <laughs> it sounds like a car ad there for a second. <laughs> there was this Delco, like, <laughs> shocks and struts. <laughs> there was a part of his speech that I thought was trying to play a little bit to the sports radio crowd and saying like, you know, it's not that I'm not manly saying, you know, the desire burns to be the best you've ever been. It's what separates sports from everything else. It's why we love it. It's why we trust it. It's why I still want to play and compete. He wants to keep playing. Um, He will have an opportunity to play for another team. Somebody will trade for him or want to trade for him and make him their starting quarterback next year. And whether that's a good idea for that team or whether it's a good idea for Tony Romo, maybe not. But I think it was partly a message to like the team and to the media, like leave us alone. Um, We're not going to make a story out of this. We're not going to turn this into the proverbial distraction. And it was also like, Hey guys, like I can still play. Sign me. I'm Tony (laughs) Romo. (laughs) Calling card. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Joining us now is Neil Payne, who's a writer at 538 and not the guy who said Hillary was probably going to win Pennsylvania. (laughs) Hey, Neil. Hey, how's it going, guys? He may have said that, though. Did you say that, Neil? I I said that privately at most, uh, certainly not publicly. So what you have been doing publicly is you've been hosting a podcast series that 538 has been running uh, as part of its hot takedown show. It's a series within the hot takedown feed. It's called Ahead of Their Time. And it's about athletes and strategies that came along before the world was quite ready for them. There are shows about the infield shift in baseball, Russians in the National Hockey League, the long ball style in soccer, and the two-handed tennis backhand. The one we're going to talk about today is Randall Cunningham and the quarterback who can both throw and run. So Cunningham came into the NFL in the 80s. You have an article on 538 as well about this. And you, as you document, there were other quarterbacks before Cunningham who were good at throwing and at running, but there was something that was different about him. What was different about Randall Cunningham? Well, one of the big things that was different about Randall Cunningham in general, just uh, you know, being a superstar quarterback, was that he was black, and there had not really been African American quarterbacks. Really, Doug, you know, Doug Williams had had won the Super Bowl just a few years before Randall's big breakout, uh, and and he entered the league before Doug Williams won won his uh, Super Bowl, and so he was an example, first and foremost, I think, of just a black quarterback that sort of 
was was the face of the league or one of the main faces of the league that had never happened before uh in addition to the fact that obviously he was an amazing combination of running and passing the ball i don't think any of the the running quarterbacks of of the era before him guys like bobby douglas uh come to mind of the chicago bears uh they they were runners but they were more like i guess you kind of could compare them to like a tim tebow style uh i don't know if that's being unfair to bobby douglas or not but uh you know they were they were runners first and they played very kind of kind of confined systems in that regard and they weren't really expected to carry the team with very much passing randall cunningham was kind of the first true dual threat quarterback where his running was off the charts he was perennially led all quarterbacks in rushing yards but he also was a really efficient passer and and you even saw that later in his career when his running ability kind of eroded with the 98 vikings he had one of the best passing seasons of any quarterback of all time so it's kind of a testament to his ability to do both so the reason that I think this is a broader story, one that transcends even uh, football, is just this concept of when you have a talent, a singular sort of talent in a team game, how you incorporate that player into the team and whether you design a system around that player. And that's something that's come up in the NFL today with Marcus Mariota and is he going to play like he played at Oregon when he's in Tennessee with Colin Kaepernick and we can cite a, a bunch of different Robert examples. Robert Griffin III. Sure. Um, and so the villain of the piece in your podcast and and Mike Pesca can chime in uh, at some point is Rich Kotite um, who wanted uh, Cunningham to play a particular way but also Buddy Ryan who was Cunningham's first coach was a defensive specialist uh, you know, according to you, to you guys, what Ryan did was basically let Cunningham do whatever he wanted without much of a system around him. So it seems like there was kind of a Goldilocks problem in Philadelphia where they either um, didn't give him enough structure or they gave him too much and kind of ruined, ruined him both ways. Yeah. Uh, Mike, first of all, are you, uh, are you a Jets fan? Do you have fond oh, memories yeah. of Rich Kotite? Yes and no, in order. <laughs> I remember when Rich Kotite was hired, the explanation was they wanted a D's and Doe's guy, meaning that he was, you know, from uh, Brooklyn and didn't pronounce his R's correctly. Great. He did bring that to the club, but go ahead. Yeah, right. If nothing else, he, he, he brought the appropriate accent, perhaps not the appropriate coaching ability. And Neil, nothing else. Yeah, no, nothing else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting because we talked to a bunch of Randall's former teammates who were there both for the Buddy Ryan era, uh, which started in Randall's second year uh, of, of his career, and then sort of through the the ultimate dismissal of Buddy Ryan and bringing in Rich Kotite, who had been the offensive coordinator under Buddy Ryan uh, with the Eagles. And so uh, they, they all kind of agreed on this idea that, you know, Buddy Ryan was a defensive coach first and foremost and you know it makes sense he was the defensive coordinator of the 85 bears uh and so he really focused on that side of the ball uh to to hear uh, some of his uh teammates say it almost entirely that he, he he was really not all that interested in in the mechanisms of how the offense worked 
And when he had a player like Randall Cunningham come in, uh, the, the people told us that kind of the wheels started turning for Buddy where he was like, this guy is going to be my salvation on that side of the ball, and I'm not actually going to have to really focus that much on it or, or end up actually kind of uh, taking the blame for what happens on that side of the ball because this guy is such a transcendent talent, uh, and, and he can operate in such an unstructured manner that uh, I'm not going to you know be held accountable on that side of the ball. And then Rich Kotite, of course, when he when he started, he was the exact opposite and wanted to micromanage. And this was, you know, the West Coast offense was still relatively new. Uh, and so it was kind of in vogue to turn a, a running quarterback into more of a pocket passer and make, you know, those short passes and have the short pass almost replace the running game in a certain way. And so it, it seemed like both systems were kind of a bad fit, although Randall did tell us that he had his kind of favorite time playing football football under Buddy Ryan when he was basically able to do whatever the hell he wanted. Right. And the the point that the podcast, I think, makes really clearly is that race was a factor here. Uh, oh, sure. You, you use a clip from Cunningham when he was playing that I think really illuminates this point. Let's listen to it. You know, you get criticized. Cunningham's not a Montana. He scrambles too much, this, that. And then sometimes it gets on your conscience and you try to be somebody that you're not. And... Um, when I come back, I'll be myself. I'm not going to try to be something that everybody wants me to be. The point being that there was this, as you guys describe it in the podcast, a platonic ideal of what a quarterback should be. And the unspoken and spoken by some people, like you know Rush Limbaugh later, is that the quarterback should be white. And someone like Rich Kotite, I can certainly see thinking like, this is how quarterback is played. There was no room for the sort of digression in terms of style, that this is how a football offense is structured, and this is how we will force this athlete to play. Um, the other telling moment in the podcast, I thought it was just, it, it reflects on how great an athlete Randall Cunningham was and how different he was. When you're talking to Carl Banks, who said the mm -hmm. basic strategy in defending Randall Cunningham was get the fuck back. Right. Don't overcommit. Yeah, exactly. And and the person that came up with that strategy for the Giants was their defensive coordinator at the time, uh, some guy named Bill Belichick. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him, but he uh, he sort of was... My, like most defensive coordinators, terrified of what Cunningham could do in the open field. And there's a there's a notable play that Randall kind of told us about, but it didn't make it into the podcast. But I'm sure you guys remember a play against the Buffalo Bills where uh, the Eagles were backed up inside their own five, uh, and, and Randall drops back, and Bruce Smith, uh, one of the great pass rushers of all time, is bearing down on him. And Randall is able to step up in the pocket, duck as as Bruce Smith's hand sort of goes over his helmet and he ends up yeah. with a with a armful of thin air and then Randall uncorks a you know 50 at least 50 yards I'd say through the air throw to Fred Barnett who takes it all the way to the end zone uh, and it ends up winning the game for them that was kind of a, a play that I don't know if we've seen anyone since Randall Cunningham be able to make, but it was this, you know, combination of his agility, his awareness in the pocket, the threat that he could run and the way that that changed and stretched the the defense and made them think. And then also his ability to just find people with what was really, truly one of the strongest 
arms, I think, of any quarterback ever. It seems like Cunningham was damned if he did and damned if he didn't, no matter what, whether it was on the field and then off the field, as you guys describe it. He became sort of a media favorite. He got a lot of endorsements, and then he was criticized for doing too many endorsements, that he was too self-promoting. And never, he is. never made it out of the first round of the playoffs. Right. So, Neil, I wanted to put this podcast in the context of all your podcasts, the Ahead of Their Time series. And in all those other ones, you talk about an innovation that actually took hold, an innovation that any thinking manager, sports fan would say, yeah, you got to do it this way. Among them, even though it was talking about Ted, Ted Williams was the title character of your shift podcast. It was really about Lou Boudreaux doing the shift. And then there was one about Russian hockey players, uh, math in soccer, and the two-handed backhand. Let's just take that one in tennis, women's tennis. I think every, 48 of the top 50 women's tennis players today use a two-handed backhand. Maybe one female tennis player won a Grand Slam in the last decade used a one-handed backhand. But what Randall Cunningham brought, the mobile quarterback, the running quarterback, the ultimate threat, the dual weapon, I don't know if, I mean, it presaged Cam Newton and Russell Wilson and Colin Kaepernick, but I don't know, A, if the cognoscenti is sold that that should be the uh, design of the quarterback, and B, they might be right. Like, Rich Kotite might have accidentally backed <laughs> into getting this one right if you look at the template that Randall Cunningham represented. Well, you know, uh, I don't know about that, Mike, because if you look at, first of all, uh, just things like quarterback yards per game or something like that, rushing yards per game, it's never been higher than it is right now. So at the kind of baseline level, the average quarterback in 2016 is more mobile than he's ever been in the history of the NFL. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, if you look at the past four Super Bowls, certainly they, they haven't won any of them, but a mobile quarterback, whether it be Russell Wilson, Colin Kaepernick, Cam Newton, has led his team to the Super Bowl in each of the past four seasons. I think that speaks also to just the fact that it is commonplace now. You know, having a quarterback, maybe the debate is still open as to whether you can win a Super Bowl or whether it's easier to win a Super Bowl with a conventional sort of dropback passer or maybe one of the more kind of newfangled offensive schemes that makes use of a, a running quarterback. But I, I think the question's been settled as to whether or not it's valuable to have these guys because being able to have a quarterback that adds that dimension, look at Alex Smith, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he doesn't fit the description that, uh, and, and you guys talked about this, this kind of racially coded description that may, maybe in Rich Kotite's era they had of the mobile quarterback, but even his ability to get out of the pocket and pick up yards on the ground improves his offense, uh, you know, in ways that we're only being able to kind of measure. So I think uh, in some ways you're right, Mike, like, you know, th there are probably still doubters and haters as to the idea of whether or not you can win a Super Bowl with a mobile quarterback. But I think uh, by and large, the, the tide of rushing aptitude for all NFL quarterbacks has risen so much since the era of Randall Cunningham mm -hmm. that now it's kind of taken for granted that you have to have some bare minimum level of well, speed. Well, okay, wait, wait. Let me just well, let me just push back on that for a second. One, the I, you and I would both know that the can't win the Super Bowl. I mean, but for one play, Kaepernick wins the Super Bowl, and so you have to look at the overall. I'm not telling you anything. You don't know. You probably taught me most of this, but you have to look at the overall <laughs> correlation between what we call a running quarterback and success. To me, 
uh, there's a guy whose career maps entirely with Cunningham, and that's Steve Young. He missed a couple years because of USFL days. But I think they broke into the league the same exact year, and they played uh, at a high level for as long. And he is maybe what the Roethlisberger and uh, Aaron Rodgers type running quarterback is. I know there's the huge racial component, but using your feet sparingly to evade defenders and also to get some yardage. And you could say that, you know, what Steve Young did maybe is the template for how a quarterback should run. I just think that the quarterback who has a lot of design plays, there's probably a big correlation between injury and that kind of quarterback. Look at Kaepernick, mm-hmm. look at Cam, and then look at, on the other hand, Manning and um, and Brady, you know, ev- evading injury because they avoid tackles. I don't know. I, th- I think that I'd rather have someone who uses his feet to get away from defenders and to throw the ball downfield. And I don't know that the advanced statistics would say I'm wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're definitely onto something, especially with Steve Young. You know, he might be the perfect platonic ideal of this guy that has, you know, one of the best, most efficient passing arms of all time and can also run. There's a reason he, you know, is in the conversation, at least for best quarterback ever. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's also something to it. That's a great point about injuries where uh you know, you don't want to be opening up your franchise's most important player to hits on on every single play, and maybe that is uh, that also speaks to you know the evolution of someone like Cam Newton, right? Like he's a much bigger player than Randall Cunningham was, uh, and and he's only slightly less mobile uh, according to the numbers, uh, and so maybe the the next evolution is the larger running quarterback in which you can kind of run some of the sneak plays. You know, Tom Brady is known for his ability to pick up yards. Uh, one yard in, in a chunk uh, almost automatically. So being able to run those plays, but then also you know being durable enough to sustain the hits and, and actually stay in well, the game, maybe well, that's the evolution. Well, Newton has run less this year by choice because he was getting beat up so much and has complained, I think rightly so, that he doesn't get calls that other quarterbacks get because he's so big. Um, but I think with the injury question like you know steve young had uh a buttload of concussions is that the uh the technical term Mm -hmm. (laughs) um tom brady uh tore up his knee and i think that there have been studies that show that you're actually not more likely to get hurt if you're a running quarterback versus a stationary one but the argument that i would make is that you know if you want to just pick out uh, an anecdote, like with RG3, for example, there are certain quarterbacks that if they do get hurt, it's catastrophic because it's so much a part of how you play the position. It's like Tom Brady isn't any more statuesque or stationary than he was before Bernard Pollard. That's just like how he played. It's not going to have as big an effect on his career if you know his knee is a little bit worse than it was before he got hurt, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that brings us back to Cunningham and his kind of resurgence after he spent some time out of the league when he came back uh, after he had kind of blown up his knee and, and gotten disillusioned with football. He came back with the Vikings and was this pocket passer extraordinaire. He had that skill set to fall back on. Uh, and, and the running component was, you know, a great aspect of his play as a young player, but it wasn't everything for him. Yeah. And I should uh, end by just noting Dak Prescott, who we talked about uh, previously yeah. on the show, he runs a little bit, but 
you know, I watched a lot of his games in college and he would just batter the other team. Like that was the big weapon that Mississippi State had when he ran the offense. And he only had something like 130 yards rushing this year. They use him like very sparingly (laughs) and tactically, probably because they have very recent experience with a starting quarterback getting injured. And so it is, I think, interesting how the evolution here isn't necessarily we're going to have a guy at quarterback who can run every play, but we have a guy who has the ability to do it when it would be most beneficial to our team. Big and mobile and will confuse defenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Payne, head of their time podcast. We mentioned uh, a bunch of them, the shift, the backhand, the Russians, and Randall Cunningham. Great, uh, great group. Great group of guys. Uh, <laughs> Neil, thank you so much. and Everybody should check out that podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This was a thrill. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. On Saturday, 19-year-old Connor McDavid got the first hat trick of his NHL career, scoring one goal each in the first, second, and third periods on the Edmonton Oilers. 5-2 win over the Dallas Stars. McDavid, who uh, right before this season became the youngest player in NHL history to be named a team captain, is second in the league in points. That's goals plus assists with 22 in 19 games played. The league leaders in goals with 12 are Pittsburgh's Sidney Crosby and Winnipeg's Patrick Laine. Laine is an 18-year-old from Finland. And though he's been in a bit of a scoring slump recently, the Toronto Maple Leafs 19-year-old Austin Matthews, the first pick, one spot ahead of Line A in this year's draft, did score four goals in the Leafs' first game this year, which is a lot of goals. Joining us now to talk about these hockey teens is Greg Wyshynski, editor of Yahoo's hockey blog Puck Daddy and the host of the daily podcast Merrick versus Wyshynski. Hey, Greg. Hey, doing, boys? Doing great. Boys is uh, kind of appropriate this week. Hockey teens, I think, is a term that will not catch on, even though I'm trying. Um, what can you tell us about these three young men? Um, who do they remind us of? Is there um, kind of anything common between them, or are they all different sorts of players? I'll tell you that in a second, but now I'm kind of hung up on the idea of there being a hockey teens magazine in Canada <laughs> that's sort of in the tradition of teen beat or mm-hmm, bop mm-hmm. here in the States. Yeah, uh, You walk into the the local convenience store, and it's just splashy photos of Connor McDavid with tank tops on and stuff like yep. Bieber style. Yeah. There might be money there. I'm gonna have to explore that. But as far instead as of the, go, instead of the instead of the Corey watch, we'll have the Artemimi watch. There's not many commonalities. I mean, you have Austin Matthews, who's an American kid. He's from Scottsdale, which has been a a real point of pride for for us here in the states. The idea that the Messiah of Toronto hockey is actually from the desert. And then you've got some some Canadian kids like Mitch Marner, who's his teammate, and obviously McDavid. You've got Willie Nylander from Sweden and Line A's from Finland. So they're all from different places. They all have different styles. But the, the one commonality I'd say is that, you know, they're part of this wave of young talent 
that is crashing over the NHL right now at a time where uh, recently the deputy commissioner of the NHL, Bill Daly, questioned whether or not it behooves the league to market individual players over teams. Because for years, it's been the logo on the front, not the name on the back. But And, and obviously, hockey has some challenges vis-a-vis uh, how, many, how many minutes these guys actually spend on the ice versus, like, say, LeBron spends in a Cavaliers game. Um, but it's, there's no question that there's a certain buzz about hockey now, and it has to do with these individual players, and they've got to figure out a way to market them. Has there ever been a push in hockey to um, do, like, a one-and-done system or like a 19 year old or 20 year old age limit, because I've always interpreted the NBA rule and kind of the NFL rule is like race-based and the idea that like we need to, you know, have these black, you know, young black men go to school uh, before they can be in professional (laughs) basketball. But, you know, they're obviously different sports, but when you have an 18 year old leading the league in goals sort of shows that there's not really any requirement in terms of like seasoning to have these guys go to the minors or go to college before they enter the pros. That's correct. And, and I think it also, you know, is happening at a time where speeds at a premium in this league and obviously younger legs are going to be faster legs in most cases. In McDavid's case, he's, he's arguably the best skater we've, we've seen maybe since Gretzky and his ability to uh, handle the puck while at full speed. Um, it's interesting you bring that up. There is a, a movement afoot, and it's headed up by uh, Pat LaFontaine, who you might remember from the days of the Buffalo Sabres, uh, trying to get the age limit for the NHL draft increased to 19 years old. And that's more of a, of a it's, it's less about like, hey, let's get these kids in education or let's make sure that they're ready to be pros. It's kind of less about that and more about trying to reinforce and strengthen the lower levels of hockey, the junior hockey leagues and the American Developmental League and the NCAA and things like that. So it's uh, it, there is some talk about it. I just don't know if it's going to come to fruition when you see like a team like the Winnipeg Jets, for example, able to draft a kid like Line A at, at uh, 18 and put him right in the league and have him make the impact he's having. But there is a movement among players to consider their options more broadly. Austin Matthews chose to shun the the traditional development system, didn't he? He ended up playing in the Swiss Professional League uh, for a season last year. That's correct, and, and that's uh, that's that's a financial decision on his part to make some money uh, now instead of having to wait around to to get a contract. But it's also sort of you know the the thing that you see from from these European players, and you could even go back to guys like Victor Hedman who's a defenseman for the Tampa Bay Lightning, a lot of these guys from, from Finland and Sweden are already playing against pros. They're already playing against men. Right. And they come into the NHL, and they're ready. They're seasoned. They're, they're ready to roll in a way that, that guys who uh, you know, have been competing on the Erie Otters, for example, aren't. Uh, so it was a very non-traditional path. I don't necessarily know if he's blazed it necessarily for other guys. Who, uh, who still adhere to a junior hockey tradition or want to come through the NCAA. Um, but it was, a, uh, it was a decision that I think made him a better player uh, coming into the league as a, as a youngster and uh, playing a, a, a challenging position. I mean, that's the one thing about, about uh, uh, Matthews versus Line A this year that uh, you, know, you have to focus on is that Line A doesn't have to play center. And when you play center, there's a certain amount of defensive responsibility in the NHL that you don't have at other levels. And so there's a pretty large learning curve for centers versus a guy like Laine, 
who's playing with uh, Mark Shifley on Winnipeg. He's kind of a seasoned pro now, and all Liney has to do is, you know, just put the stick back and put his head down and fire pucks like he's a Finnish Ovechkin while someone else does the defensive work. First, I'd like to note, I only wish the Erie Otters were not named after Erie, Pennsylvania, but just a description of a macabre water weasel. That would be an excellent <laughs> team name. Ooh, Erie. But how, when are we going to see the impact in terms of uh, how good the teams are with these promising young players? Because I note Toronto would be out of the playoffs today, and yet Edmonton is on top of the Pacific Division. And Winnipeg is right up there, too. Mm. Yeah, and Win- Winnipeg's been, I think, the bigger surprise. Uh, they've gotten better than expected goaltending after demoting this guy, Andre Pavlik, who's not all, been all that good. They still have a negative goal differential, but the, the offense from that top line has certain car- certainly carried them in the early part. Edmonton's a funny one. Like They're, they're a team that everyone expects is going to be good because of, of McDavid. I mean, kind of in the way that, that Pittsburgh pulled itself together when Crosby arrived in the same way. There's also a thought that Milan Lucic signing last summer is the first of many Connor McDavid effect signings and acquisitions of people who want to come to Edmonton and play with Connor. Um, so they could be a team that's a little bit ahead of schedule. They're in, in a division where I think it's, it's possible that they could end up uh, being the third team in that division or, or perhaps even sneaking in a wild card spot, which is important because, you know, the other commonality between these young players is that a lot of them play in Canada, which is not the best news for the NHL, um, considering the way that, that NBC programs its, its network. They just added a Matthews versus McDavid game later in the season, which is great news because before that, the only other time that American fans were going to see Austin Matthews was in the, the outdoor game that Toronto's playing on January 1st, and they weren't going to see McDavid at all until maybe the playoffs. And so the more of these young players that can get the playoff spotlight, the better it's going to be because, honestly, that's the only way that they're going to get network time on NBC or NBC Sports Network. Really? Because I would think that the NHL would be eager for the league to end the Canadian drought. I mean, it's been kind of embarrassing for the NHL that the Canadian teams have been as lousy as they have been um, in, in, pre, in, in, in recent seasons. And Montreal's doing a lot better this year, too, right? Yeah, and and you know, there's no question that you know it's, they have a complicated relationship with Canadian teams. They obviously want Montreal to be strong. It's a great market when the Canadians do well. It's great because that means the teams that play the Canadians are going to be interesting matchups, like the Boston Bruins, right. for example. Ditto the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, uh, Lord knows the Maple Leafs are extraordinarily important to this league. They've given them almost every event this season for their centennial. They want them to be strong too. What they don't want is for, of the 16 teams that make the playoffs, for like, you know, eight of them to be Canadian. <laughs> they don't want that. Uh, because the problem there for the NHL in the U.S. is that they, they get no ratings benefit from the Canadian markets in, in the Nielsen. It's right. a problem that you remember from the World Series when the Blue Jays would make it as well. So, you know, there have been times when the, um, a strong American market can carry the ratings number for a Canadian team. For example, the Boston Bruins classic uh, Stanley Cup final against the Vancouver Canucks that ended in seven games and with Vancouver trying to burn its own city down. Like The ratings there were super strong, but it took all of New England to get you there. So I think the NHL wants Canada to be competitive, would not mind a team like Montreal making a cup run, uh, or, or maybe Connor McDavid making a cup run at some point, but still wants the 
majority of its playoff teams to be based in the United States. Okay, so let's imagine, um, let's put some some pressure on this McDavid child and say, like, you know, five or six years from now, he's won a couple cups, he's won um, a couple MVP awards. How does that look for the NHL in terms of, you know, where the sport is, in terms of how big a star he is, in terms of how many games um, the Edmonton Oilers are on television? Is that like a, a good place for the NHL if the best player in decades and maybe the best player since Gretzky is like just kicking ass in Edmonton? For the same yeah, team that I, Gretzky I don't know. I mean, I think it all really depends on how, on how the sports world in general kind of accepts him. Like... <clears throat> There's no question that Gretzky was a crossover star, right? I mean, he ended up on SNL. Everybody knew his name. He was as synonymous with hockey as Pele was with soccer at one point. Can McDavid be that kind of player where people are going to search out his games because they're seeing him do things that no one else has done? I think the possibility is there, and I I think it only increases if the Oilers themselves become successful. Um, But it's, it's it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum for hockey. Like I said off the top, like, the, the problem for, for the NHL, and it's always been this problem, is that Connor McDavid's going to play between 22 and at the most 25 minutes a night, right? And that's just over a third of the game. So if you're tuning in to watch this guy, and this was the problem the first time that, that they, uh, they threw Matthews on the air um, here in the States, is that you know he had the four-goal game to start the season, then he kind of didn't really do anything in the next game is that, you know, you don't see these guys all that often on the ice. When you do, casual fans have hard time, a hard time identifying who they are on the ice. That's why I've been a proponent of using that sort of NASCAR giant arrow pointing from the <laughs> player to his uh, headshot uh, to follow them on the ice. What about just digitally erasing all the other players? That would, that would also work. <laughs> well, or, or just doing that thing they do when they do highlights where they, they kind of like, you know, make him in color and make everybody else black and white. Let me do it that way. I don't know. There, there's got to be some ways where they can highlight the individual players better because honestly, like, it, it, it's, there's no question that the franchises themselves bought the NHL back from the abyss in 2005. You know, the, the strength of the Chicago Blackhawks dynasty, the fact that Pittsburgh was good again, the fact that the Flyers were good again, Boston winning a cup, like, all of these things kind of came together for them uh, from a market perspective that resuscitated the sport after they killed the season. But now we've got to kind of move past that into a, another era where you simply can't have it be the you know Toronto Maple Leafs. It's got to be come watch this Austin Matthews kid and the Maple Leafs because these this, this generation of young players is too good to simply have them be you know assimilated into the into the board collective of of team marketing in this in this sport. Well, then then does that lead to the question of what kind of pressure is there on someone like Connor McDavid? or on Austin Matthews to bolt for a U.S. market when the opportunity arises in free agency, which is obviously down the road. Well, in Matthews' case, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tough one because um, you assume that when his contract's up, when he has the ability to leave, in theory, the Leafs are going to be in a position to, to challenge for a cup. Financially, is, right. Well, and financially, you know, they're in a position in, to keep it. But in McDavid's case, but in McDavid's case, I mean, there's a long tradition of players escaping Edmonton for, for greener pastures, whether it's Gretzky, Messier, uh, Chris Pronger, 
Like the list goes on and on of guys that have gotten out of Edmonton. So I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying that, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying that when Edmonton, I will never forget the look on McDavid's face when Edmonton won the draft lottery. I'll just put it, put it that way. <laughs> just to be fair, though, in terms of pure climatology, when you say leaving Edmonton for greener pastures, Calgary counts as greener <laughs> pastures than Edmonton. <laughs> Uh, everything I is. should. I guess I should have said sunnier pastures. <laughs> yeah, that too. With Northlands Coliseum, and, and I mean they have to have green pastures up there to make that delicious Albertan beef that I love to eat. <laughs> mm. Mm. So well marbled. So football is gigantic and enormous and uh, dominant, and yet you know on the show we talk about how the the, the product's just not that good. NHL has its problems that we talk to you about all the time, but. The product's good. The product's as good as it's ever been, hasn't it? Well, complicated question. Um, I think from a a speed and scoring perspective, it's better than it's ever been. Um, We we have shaken past the trap years. Uh, The Pittsburgh Penguins lit the way for trying to play an up-tempo, aggressive style and making that successful in the way they won the Cup. Um, other teams have, emu- have uh, mimicked that, including the New York Rangers this season, who are shooting the lights out trying to play that kind of style. Um, so that's the good news. Scoring is still roughly five goals a game on a good night. It could be higher, but that, that would take some fundamental changes to, to the game that go beyond trying to make the goalie's pants smaller. But when you ask me if, if the sport's better than it's ever been, it really kind of is a generational thing. And I've, I've come to a place where I don't want to crap on the current product because there, there are young fans, millennials watching this game that don't know the blood soaked Patrick division days that I grew up watching. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's going to be nostalgia bias. I don't know if it's just, you know, that I'm right and they're wrong or they're, or they're right and I'm wrong. But there's always going to be a part of me that thinks that for all of the speed and all of the, of the excitement and all of the highlights being generated by this, version of the National Hockey League, it lacks the passion and the stakes and the danger in some cases of, uh, of, of old school hockey, which probably can't exist anymore thanks to, you know, lawsuits and concussion, concussion right. research. But it's the product that I'm always going to kind of hold near and dear to, to my heart as being more compelling than today's, if not as well played. That that I get, that I get, and I understand. Uh, I understand the role of nostalgia, and also what you used to. And we all define the sport uh, when we're young, and then we always compare it to how we define the sport. But if you were to construct a sport that has the elements of what compels viewers, the elements of today's hockey game. Uh, with the speed, with things can happen on any play, without the slogginess of the neutral zone trap and all of that, without so many ridiculous stoppages, also without horrible injuries, and you know they've they've done well with uh, understanding concussions and fighting, which may be two things that you I'm not going to say hold dear, but you countenance more than what a marketer would. It would seem to me that the construction of hockey now is poised to. Attract the kind of mass audience that other sports or entertainments with those elements have. Well, I'll, the only, I'll agree with you on the gameplay aspect of it because you know part and parcel of having guys that fight is having guys that can't play. Yeah, and there's no question that having four competitive lines on every team is only going to be a good thing with regard to quality of play. There's no question the quality of play is better than it's ever been. But I'll push back on you on the marketing aspect of it, which is fighting and violence have always been 
part and parcel of marketing hockey. Like whenever they like, when I remember when the Nashville, this is what I always refer to, when the Nashville Predators first came to town, the first billboard they put up was "Stu the Grim Reaper Grimson." You know, there's always going to be that aspect of it that was extraordinarily easy to market, um, but you can't do it anymore, and 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 that's completely understandable. I'm, I'm not saying we should regress and go back to the, the days of fighting and, and the days of guys ending up on stretchers. We must protect you, these you teens. You, you we, must, we must protect the teens. Right. You just, you just can't do it. But at the same time, there's no, listen, I, I see our numbers, you know, when we do have incidents of violence and we do have brawls and we do have controversial hits that end up with injuries. These aren't things that you necessarily want to point to and say, yay, hockey, watch us. There are also the things you can point to and say, these get traffic, these get interest. There are people who are still watching this game and, and, and seeing these incidences and, and wanting to talk about them and debate them and, and, and watch them in real time. And it's, it's an undeniable facet of the game, even if we can all agree that the game itself, the on-ice product, is, is better played and more entertaining than it's ever been. All right, I'm going br- to have to break it up. It's getting a little uh, <laughs> bloody in here. <laughs> Josh Levine, third man in. Uh, that's Greg Wyshynski. He's the editor of Yahoo's hockey blog, Puck Daddy, and the host of the daily podcast, Merrick versus Wyshynski. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, boys. Now it is time for Afterballs. And the Erie Otters were mentioned in the previous segment. And Mike, you would like to tell us more about the Erie Otters, a particular Erie Otter, in fact. Mm-hmm. Well, I was uh, researching Shooter, the mascot of the Erie Otters, and everything about Shooter seems fairly generic from his name to his likes on Facebook, high-fiving and leading cheers. But I did find... Is he- the mascot the alcoholic character played by Dennis Hopper in Hoosiers? <laughs> exactly. And he uh, he's going to revel in the Erie Otters victory from, while detoxing in a uh, Indiana hospital. I, I assume. Don't, don't get caught watching the paint dry. That's right. <laughs> Picket fence. So Shooter uh, does offer his Twitter feed, Otters Shooter, does offer an excellent resource of he's following 28 people, or I shouldn't say people. He's following one hockey league and a couple of blogs about mascots and then 25 mascot Twitter feeds. So it's sort of a one-stop shop if you want to wow. follow the Cavs mascot, Moondog, Harry the Hawk. I know you want to follow Pierre the Pelican, Josh. There's Clutch the Bear, Bango the Buck, Benny the Bull, Poozy of the Canton Charge, Boomer of the Pacers. This is where to go if you want to follow all your favorite mascots and some you wish didn't exist. Mike, yeah. what is your shooter? So this Sunday, the children and I went, uh, had a wonderful uh, Brooklyn day going backwards. There was uh, the Brooklyn Nets game. We saw the Nets. We saw the locals hang close with uh, the Portland Trailblazers for a quarter. <laughs> Got out of hand. The Trailblazers, the 20-point win, the previous uh, largest margin of victory was 10 for them. They're a fun team to watch, though. Very fun team to watch. And my scouting report on the Nets is that that Lopez fellow's good. No one else is. And and by the way, Portland had Myers Leonard, a 7-1 guy who likes to shoot three-pointers. Just very weird because you have the, the guards crashing the glass and the seven-footers uh, hanging around the edge trying to get their three-pointers. So that was good. That was the third best thing of the evening this or the day the second best thing was uh was the brooklyn flea market which is, has set up shop in the williamsburg saving bank which is right next to barclays arena if you're in town but the best thing and it's also sports related was the brooklyn museum now there is an exhibit on 
photography, sports photography there. But there were other things scattered throughout the museum with sports components. And one of them was is this piece called Liberty, which is a, an artist, a sculptor and photographer named Hank Willis Thomas. And what he did was he saw a photograph. I, I don't really understand how one led to the other led to the third. But anyway, he saw a photograph of a Harlem Globetrotter spinning his bas- a basketball on his finger on the cover of Life magazine in front of the Statue of Liberty. And I guess that inspired him. I, I don't even know why they referenced that because he went and he cast Jawan Howard's arm spinning a basketball. I don't know if the basketball is actually spinning while the casting was taking place. Also, there's nothing Jawan Howardy about. I don't know how he got Jawan Howard to do this. You don't see any other evidence that it's Jawan Howard. And I've scoured the internet to try to find a photo of Jawan Howard with his arm and, you know, plaster of Paris holding up a basketball. Nothing, nothing exists. The whole Jawan Howard thing might be a red herring, but this artwork called Liberty is there. And then they have the exhibit on shooting sports and several great photographs. And there's one by Charles Conlon. Now, Charles Conlon is responsible for one of the most iconic photographs in baseball history. And it is that one of Ty Cobb stealing third, sliding into Jimmy Austin. I didn't realize that Jimmy Austin played on the New York Highlanders then. It's, a, I think, from a 1910 game. Um, but the other interesting thing about Conlon and again, this was as explained as Jawan Howard's presence in that piece of art, is that, here, let me read it from the exhibit. You're not supposed to take pictures of the pictures, but I took a picture of one of the cards next to the pictures, and this is what it says. Charles Conlin believed baseball players' eyes were different from everyone else's. He looked deeply into them to see if they revealed anything superhuman that allowed them to slam a ball most people could not even see. And in fact, if you look over Charles Conlon's photographs, which recently sold, he was, they were, they were owned, I think, by uh, Sporting News. And there was a fraud trial of the guy who bought, uh, I think, all of the Sporting News' archives. And they recently sold for a lot of money. But some of his best photographs are just Babe Ruth head on or Lou Gehrig head on or just staring into the eyes of these baseball players. And I don't know if the person who wrote that up just generally perceived this to be true or if Conlon had this actual idea that their eyes were somehow superhuman, but staring into them through the prism of time and through Charles Conlon's camera does offer an insight. Stefan, what is your shooter? U.S. men's national soccer team head coach Jurgen Klinsmann had a bad couple of weeks. First, his team lost a World Cup qualifier at home to Mexico for the first time since 1972. Then the Yanks went on the road to Costa Rica and were demolished for nothing. The losses put the U.S. in an early hole in the final round of World Cup qualifying and led columnists and fans to once again declare that now, after six years, it is time for Klinsman to go. Klinsman responded as he usually does. After the games and in subsequent interviews, he threw players under the bus while asserting that there are issues that need to be addressed, but they shouldn't be exaggerated or cause panic because it's a four-year cycle. The end goal is the World Cup. There will be ups and downs. We'll still qualify, blah, blah, blah. As he always does, Klinsman deployed the Catch-22 designed to save his job. You can't be a great soccer nation without consistency, but you can't have consistency if you fire the manager. Suggesting that, Klinsman told Sam Borden of the New York Times on Sunday night is the knee-jerk response of, quote, people who don't understand soccer or the team, meaning the media and fans, and who need to stick to the facts. Earlier over the weekend, after attending a state dinner where he gave U.S. jerseys to President Obama and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, 
Klinsman talked to Reuters and he phrased his wine differently. When things go slightly off, he said, there are some people who come out and are ready to chop your head off. Klinsman is not a fan of decapitation especially because we're talking about his head here, but it does turn out that he is a fan of using the phrase chop off your head or chop your head off. Talking to reporters in San Jose before the Costa Rica debacle, Klinsman said defender John Brooks had apologized to the team for the shitty marking that allowed Mexico's Rafa Marquez to score the winning goal. It's important that you realize that you made the mistake, Klinsman said. Nobody chops off your head, but let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Back in 2006, when the German national team he was coaching lost to Italy 4-1 a few months before the World Cup, quote, they wanted to chop off my head, Klinsman said in an interview a few years later. Fortunately for him, he was not decollated and Germany finished third in the tournament. Klinsman, of course, is German and maybe chopping off your head is a more common phrase in his native tongue, abhaken Kopf, or maybe jemanden den Kopf abschlägen. German speakers, please feel free to weigh in. Or maybe he read Alice in Wonderland and liked the imagery. Those three uses were all I could find, but I also found an interview with Matthias Hermann, a former Bundesliga player whom Klinsmann hired to the U.S. national team staff. Hermann was asked about wooing young dual nationals to play for the United States and creating a chill environment during training for them. Quote, when a player was with one of our physical therapists and he's a couple of minutes late, we're not going to chop his head off. So the affinity for Kopfabhocking is definitely a German thing, or Hermann was displaying serious idiomatic loyalty to his boss, which would indicate more frequent usage by Klinsmann. In either case... I'll say that it's time to chop off Klinsman's head figuratively. Of course. Josh, what's your shooter? I tuned into the Washington Green Bay game last night in the fourth quarter, hoping to see Washington lose, which did not come to pass, sadly. When I started washing, it was Washington 29, Green Bay 24, and the Washington team had the ball and was driving down the field. With 6.45 to go, Robert Kelly carried the ball for one yard, and Green Bay linebacker Nick Perry got hurt. Uh, this game was on NBC, and here's how the network's Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth described that injury. Nick Perry was in there, helping to make that tackle, and then as the pushing was going before they blew the play dead, Perry went down at the back end of that, and he's the Packer who's getting medical attention right now. Okay, clean up a couple of things. Nick Perry walked off, mostly under his own power. His ankle was trapped under the big pile of bodies. So what you don't get from the replay of the game, I got this clip off of NFL Game Rewind, is that there was a commercial in between uh, Mike Tirico saying that Perry was hurt and him saying that his ankle had been trapped under the pile. Okay, moving on. Two plays later, Kelly runs it again. This time, Green Bay linebacker Blake Martinez gets hurt. We have a timeout taken with the injury to Blake Martinez, who's down for Green Bay. Boy, that's a problem. Now they're out of linebackers. They might have to move Clay Matthews back inside now. This is the story of their season, defensive injuries. Timeout. Story of their season, Stefan, defensive injuries. So at this point... I'm starting to like take notice that there's a kind of dehumanization and depersonalization here. It's like Blake Martinez got hurt, but Blake Martinez in the context of this game is not Blake Martinez person. It's Blake Martinez, uh, you know, stand in for Green Bay linebacking 
injury woes, that the issue here is that the Packers are going to be having uh, some defensive issues because, you know, human wearing a white shirt is uh, unable to to walk at this point. All right. Two plays later, guess what happens? Someone else is dehumanized. (laughs) Green Bay safety uh, control Bryce gets hurt after tackling Washington's Jamison Crowder. Let's take a listen. At the back end of that, Kentrell Bryce goes down, and he is receiving medical attention from the Packers staff. So they're putting that on the half-yard line, but did he ever actually go to the ground? So this was, this was my favorite. They don't even, like, stop. It's not even, like, taking a breath. He's like, that guy's down, but wait a second. Where's the, uh, where's the ball? Did he go to the ground? Is it on the half-yard line? I guess it was just the like repetition of it that these guys just kept getting hurt. And it seemed like the more <laughs> players from the Packers got hurt, the less interested the announcers were in the fact that this was happening. And maybe it was because there was actually exciting football-y stuff happen- happening. It had just, you know, Washington had just gotten the ball down to the one yard line, but just like how little attention and how short shrift it got that there was a guy just lying there prone, unable to, you know, to to walk right next to, you know, where the, the spot of the ball happened. I would I would have thought that the accumulation of injuries would have been something to draw attention. But in this case, it was not. Just another Sunday, Josh. Sing at Faith Hill. All right. We love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Members on Mo Beatty, and thanks for listening.